Hey everybody, uh, welcome on in. This is episode number two of Junior Bartello. My name is June Lee. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, thanks for subscribing and leaving a rating. If you haven't done that already, please go onto iTunes and do that. Um, we're hoping this show becomes a variety of different things, and I hope you guys enjoyed the episode uh, with Jay Caspian Kang last week. Uh, we got some pretty good feedback from from you guys, the listeners, and and I really do appreciate all of it. Um, we're, we're still trying to figure out what we're doing with the show, and we're going to be tinkering with the format. Uh, we're still going to have a ton of interviews, hopefully, with, with interesting writers, and then uh, Robbie and I will still be talking about a variety of things from a week-to-week basis, hopefully, uh, when we don't have interviews. And then I'll, I'll probably do a couple one-off episodes with some of my friends talking about sports and pop culture and a variety of things. I still have to find somebody to, to do the Star Wars episode with because I've got a lot of things to, to decompress with on that front. I think I'm, I'll bring on my friend uh, Taylor Weston, who, who's one of my friends from high school, and we'll we'll be talking about not just Star Wars, but movies and a variety of things, and we'll probably do that as a one-off episode in the coming weeks. Uh, this week, we have Mina Kimes from ESPN, the magazine. Mina is uh, somebody that I've kind of gotten to know a little bit on Twitter, and she's uh, an absolutely fantastic writer. She has written a bunch of great profiles, uh, most mostly on NFL players over this over this past year she wrote a feature on antonio brown uh, a couple weeks ago which was excellent for the magazine she also wrote a feature on darrell revis at the beginning of the season which was also excellent so if you haven't checked those out please go and check those out and and read those they're they're excellent features she wrote she wrote a great feature over the summer uh on faker who is a korean eSports superstar, probably one of the best video game players in the world. And she wrote a fascinating feature on not just Fager, but the eSports industry in general in Korea and how that's kind of taken over that culture over there. So it's a, it was a great interview, great talking to Mina, and uh, on a variety of topics, not just uh, not just working at ESPN, but her transition from starting at, at Fortune Small Business as a business writer out of college and then how she got her job at ESPN the magazine and and kind of what she likes to look for when she's interviewing subjects for her feature stories. It was a pretty fun conversation, so I hope you guys do enjoy it. Uh, so without further ado, this is Mina Kimes. Thanks for coming on today, Mina. Yeah, thanks for having me. So my first question for you is at what point did you decide that you wanted to go into writing? Writing? Oh, boy. Um, well, I was always interested in writing, not necessarily journalism I didn't you know you know what actually I did do a little bit of high school newspaper stuff but I wasn't like one of those kids who you know is like really into their high school paper or even the college paper really I kind of dabbled in it I'm certainly not wasn't as committed as as you are (laughs) um when I was in college but I was an English major and it seemed like one of the things I could do with my life based on that I wasn't sure what I wanted to write about. You know, I, I went into college, I went to Yale, and I went into it very interested in arts and culture writing um, and came out with a job at a business magazine. So that was more, I think, a product of circumstances and people offering me internships uh, than any deliberate choice. And you went to Yale, right? Yeah, I did, yeah. I mean, Yale is a pretty strong student newspaper in the Daily News. So what did you do for the Daily News if anything, while you were on campus? I did nothing for their paper. I actually, at one point, um, roomed with a girl who was the publisher of the Yale Daily News, which is like a full-time job. I remember just like hearing about it being like, holy crap, you know, I was not at all 
involved in that. I wrote a few pieces, like random stories for the Yale Herald, which was the other newspaper. And then um, I also did a few, just a few magazine stories here and there. I wrote for a magazine called The New Journal, uh, which still exists at Yale and is fantastic. But I definitely wasn't like a day-to-day reporter in college, uh, which, you know, I regret. I wish I had gotten the kind of experience you're getting. <laughs> so what kind of turned you and made you want to go into journalism then? Well, I got an internship. So I'll just quick kind of run down my internships. Let me see. After my first year, I interned as a teacher in Baltimore and was super awful at it. Um, then my second year, I interned in book publishing and sucked at that too. I fell asleep a lot. Um, but the book publisher, and mostly I just wanted to live in New York, which is where all my friends were living that summer. And being from Arizona, it was kind of a dream, right, to live in the city. So that summer I interned for uh, Time Warner Book Group. Well, at the time it was called... No, it was Time Warner Book Group at the time, then it became Grand Central, and now it's Hachette. But it was owned by Time Warner and affiliated with Time Inc. So I was somehow, God knows how, able to parlay that into an internship the next summer at Time Inc. And they assigned me to a magazine called Fortune Small Business, uh, despite the fact that I knew nothing about small business and also had knew nothing about econ. I don't... I managed to get through college without ever taking econ or math, um, but was I know, and I think you can't get away with it now at Yale. From what I hear, they've mm-hmm. cracked down on uh, the requirements. But anyways, I you know I took like um, for a science class, I had to take like two legitimate science classes, and one of them was called an issues approach to biology, which was just like about pot, and then the other one, I remember I almost took astronomy astronomy is the legit one right astrology is like your I think so. so I almost took astronomy and I remember because it was like all oh, the cool English kids were taking that and I remember on the first day we walked in and they were like okay I hope you guys have your graphing calculators and I was like fuck no like I am not here for the oh sorry so anyways long story short I didn't take math or econ in college, but somehow ended up with this internship at Fortune Small Business Magazine. Um, And I loved it. It was great. And I got a job there after college. I was doing some research for this and I I stumbled across your your college blog. Oh, no. No. (laughs) This is uh, what celebrities call a gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it just it just kind of came across in my in my Google searches. Uh, What years did you go to college? Uh, I graduated in 2007, so it was kind of early black right, and Right, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of things were you writing about back then? Uh, it was a lot of overwrought meditations on like literary theory and politics, uh, in addition to like random things about college and my family and funny pictures. <laughs> I, I mean, I... Uh, to like shut that down somehow. <laughs> I mean, I have a bunch of friends at Yale right now from high school, and I see them posting long Facebook stats about all the things that are going on there with the protests and everything. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I know. I definitely would have been blogging up a storm if I had been there at the time. Um, but it's cool. I think it's great that you know now kids are like have more forums to actually like, write about what's going on. So, how do you think that blogging and and the writing helped you? translate to where your writing career is now? 
Um, you know, I, not working for the student newspaper and feeling pressure to deliver for my, you know, high 10 digit readership. Um, 10 digit, I mean, I'm trying to say less than 100. I, you know, kind of forced myself to write pretty often, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, you know, I, I don't know, if you look at the blog, I did post pretty frequently. Um, and I think that is obviously like the most important skill you can develop as a young writer is actually forcing yourself to write. So, and, and you know, like coming up with critical takes on the news, however stupid they were, was probably good practice. Um, that's another thing, riffing on the news or just trying to come up with original ideas uh, was a good experience. So you started at Fortune out of college and uh, having not taken an econ class during college, how did you kind of learn things on the fly and, and adapt? So um, my first job was at Fortune Small Business, which was not super businessy. It was very um, even you know, maybe some micro would have helped, but I was mostly just telling stories about entrepreneurs and that didn't require a lot of quantitative expertise or awareness of what was happening in the economy. Even, and even though I did start paying attention, it was about a year later when I started working for fortune that I really dove into the business world because my first beat there um, was writing about investing in finance. So that's about as hard as you can get, you know, in terms of hard business. So I just started reading the Wall Street Journal every day, money investing section and the Times and business section. And just kind of every time I didn't understanding something, which was a lot, um, forcing myself to read the internet until I did understand it. Um, so just like not letting myself get through articles until I actually understood what they were saying was, I guess the, and, uh, there was obviously a lot of learning on the job. Um, just not pretending like I, you know, I, I think it was an editor who told me that the most important thing I could do is not pretend like I knew things when I didn't. And that was a really helpful lesson early on in terms of trying to understand the economy and what was going on. So having to learn on the fly, you know, having not taken an econ class, uh, at your first job at Fortune Magazine, uh, how did you learn and adapt, and what were some of your, your biggest takeaways from that experience? Um, a couple of things. One, with the topic matter, I think it's really important to write about things you're not naturally interested in or, like, fans or, you know, have a, you know, it's funny writing about sports now, which is something I do have a natural interest in and, in you know, a more personal vibe with. Um, I think it was a really good experience writing about something I didn't feel that way about and sort of forcing myself to find what was compelling in it and to um, apply my own sort of eye towards it or whatever. So I think that's a really good experience for writers, young writers, I guess, in general, is not just writing about what you like and love. I know that sounds kind of weird, but... And then the other thing is, um, I mean, this is... I, I was very... I have a very unique experience coming up right before sort of the economic crisis and I think right before a lot of magazines... And newspapers started having massive layoffs, uh, which is that, A, I kind of got to see what it was like right before then. And B, was sort of thrown into the fire because I had a lot of opportunities that I don't think I would have had five years before then because there was so much turmoil in the industry. Um, the other thing I, that comes to mind is, you know, I wrote writing for a print magazine early on was very interesting because I think... Some, a lot of people come up now writing for the web right from the beginning, right? 
And from a pretty, I guess from the very beginning, I was forced to meet word counts and meet like a standard for what is acceptable, what they'll put in the magazine that I think kind of shaped my style and um, sort of views on reporting and that bar to clear. So what is your family background? Uh, You said you grew up in Arizona? Yeah, my dad, so my mom is Korean. And then my father was in the military, so I lived at a lot of places. Um, I was born in Nebraska and off at Air Force Base. And he's from Seattle, which is why I'm a Seattle sports fan. And, and anyone who follows you on Twitter is uh, pretty much aware of that. Yeah, not not in a good place this morning to talk about that. We just lost. But um, my dad was in the military, so we lived in Michigan, uh, California, Washington, Arizona. I'm leaving out some stuff. Virginia. Anyway, so I went to high school in Arizona, though, so um, that's kind of where I lived the longest. So myself as a first-generation American, uh, I I had some interesting experiences with dealing with my identity uh, as a Korean-American, as someone who wasn't born in this country, and, and having to live with a family who didn't really know what it was like to, to live in this country. Um, and since you're, you're half Korean, um, I want, I just kind of want to know what your experiences was, uh, growing up as a Korean American or a half Korean American moving around in the U S. Yeah. It really varied from place to place. You know, in California, um, not only are there a lot of Asians, there are a lot of half Asians, Washington too. Um, so I felt a lot more less um, anomalous there than I did in a place like Arizona, for example. Um, so I, I never, in all the places I lived, uh, until college, I didn't really feel like I saw a kind of community. Um, people weren't talking about Asian American issues or discrimination until then. So it was a really eye-opening experience for me. and something I've been thinking about a lot, right, with all this uh, these incidents at Yale. Um, so I didn't have, I also didn't have a lot of, um, Asian American role models growing up too. I mean, it's in journalism, I mean, uh, until college. Who were, who were some of those role models? Well, at Time Inc., um, they, you know, there was a great affinity program and they introduced us to some of the Asian American editors and writers who were more senior at the company and at, at fortune magazine, one of the top editors, a woman named Stephanie Mehta, who's fantastic and is at Bloomberg now and was very involved in the affinity group there. Um, but you know, it, 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 I am always surprised, but I mean, AJ is fantastic, but, um, company to company, it certainly varies, right? How, how many there are and how many outspoken there are and what kind of mentorship programs there are. So I was lucky, I think, at timing to find that pretty early on. So how do you think your experience of being Asian American in the United States has influenced how you write or how you approach stories uh, in the first place? It certainly approaches how I read stories, especially not, and, and I think this is important, not just about Asian American issues, but about any issues that involve sort of othering or minority groups or disenfranchised groups. I always read them like I kind of with an eye to that. Um, and I look for those stories in a way that I think stems from not just personal experience, you know, being half Asian and I think passing for white or being perceived as white. And a lot of groups has really colored my experience as well. Um, 
and seeing how that's perceived as a privilege has really colored my experience uh, in terms of how I read these stories and think about them. But I do feel a strong draw towards stories like that in the way that I think other Asian American minority journalists do. So did ESPN hire you after you posted the Tumblr post on the Seahawks and the relationship with your dad? Uh, you know, I think that uh, that was kind of a signal to them that I like sports. Oh, okay. Um, did <laughs> Which you e- I always know. Right. So did you ever really expect to have the opportunity to be writing about sports? No. You know, well, I, I, I'd be lying. At the time, I had been talking to people about it, so it didn't come totally out of the blue. But um, it certainly wasn't something that I was angling for, interested in. Um, so no, I mean, you know, I was seven or eight years in at that point and it's a pretty significant career change. You know, in newspapers, people switch beats all the time, but I had been writing about business at that point and kind of established a career. So it was a pretty crazy change personally, um, and a pretty big risk for both me and ESPN. Uh, so no, it wasn't something I had thought about, to be honest, um, until I just made the jump. What have you kind of found has been the difference between covering business and sports? I mean, has, has, is there even really a difference at the core of it? There's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still just reporting and the same skills and tools apply and the writing is similar. Although I've definitely found in sports writing, there's, it, it is a little less spare and there's a little bit more room for, um, kind of literary flair, maybe too much so in a lot of cases. But um, I think, you know, it's the little things that jump out. I mean, the way I set up my interviews and approach sources and deal with um, the primary figures is very different from how I have to do it now. And I kind of had to learn, okay, so I want to convince an athlete to sit for a profile and get time with them. It's a whole new rule book, you know, and it's very different from dealing with business leaders and CEOs. Um, in my previous job, my last position, I was more, I was working in an investigative team. So that was totally different from what I'm doing now. Um, and the adjustment has been pretty interesting. You know, a lot of it is, I do feel like I'm constantly having to ask my colleagues, Oh, okay. So, you know, you're dealing with the agents here and, and these people are available at this time and you have to go to the locker room. You know, it's a, it's a whole new world and vocabulary. Um, so that's been interesting. How is dealing with athletes different from dealing with business people or high-profile business people? Um, in some ways, they're less coached or less not, – not coached um, – less – premeditated in their comments, right? And a little bit more open, but, and then other ways they're closed off, which is a terrible answer. But, um, I guess you, you can, there are more glimpses of honesty and transparency and truth with athletes, but it can be a little bit harder to access. It can be very difficult to access that. Um, especially, you know, with, it's the same thing in, in some ways, which is that you're just trying so hard not to get them to say the thing that they've been saying over and over, to fall into kind of this routine of answering when you're in- interviewing them. And that's the same. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's just a totally – you know, the other thing I will add is athletes are interviewed, especially the famous ones, are interviewed more often. And 
interviewed by, you know, these the B reports over and over and over again and asked the same question. So in some ways it's a greater challenge to kind of take them out of that space and get them to be kind of open. But um, I don't know. It, it can be a little bit more difficult than it is with CEOs in some ways. So what's the approach that you kind of take to get these athletes to open up and kind of show who they really are as 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 people and not just athletes? Uh, well, it's a mixture of trying to be observant of, and this is just kind of magazine writing, you know, or any kind of writing is is watching how they are, and not just his voice sounded this way or he looked this way, but watching, you know, waiting for those moments in which they interact with people who aren't you, trying to just get glimpses into their personality because that'll tell you more than how they deal with you, usually as a reporter, right? Um, but also really preparate preparing uh, with questions. I mean, I already feel like sometimes I go into these interviews and athletes are already kind of weirded out by me. Um, not because of necessarily like how I look or who I am, but the fact that I don't think like a experienced sports writer in some ways, maybe hopefully works to my advantage. Um, how so? Uh, you know, I don't even think to ask the questions that you're supposed to ask them about sports and the things that I'm curious about tend to be pretty random and unusual. Um, so I tried to exploit that and, and take advantage of it in the same way that I tried to do with it with business interviews as well. You know, I really try not, I think getting out of that headspace where you're trying to show them that you're smart and think like them is really important. Um, not trying to impress them. Uh, and that was the same with business as well. And that can be very difficult, especially for, you know, we, as journalists, most of us are constantly trying to impress people and convince people we're smart. Um, so breaking out of that mindset when you're doing an interview is challenging. And I try to do that with athletes, uh, especially, um, and just, you know, I mean, there's that whole talk about joke, right? Where Brian Curtis like, wrote that piece at Grant Land about how people are always asking athletes, talk about da 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 da, or, you know, which is a silly question. Sure. Uh, <laughs> thinking, how do I not do that? But how do I not ask questions that can be answered yes or no? How can I get into, get the to a scene? telling me the story and keep them there temp temporarily and describe what it was actually like to be in that moment is something I'm always trying to do. So when you have a feature story and on something like the one you wrote on Faker and esports in Korea, and then you also have a story like the one you had on Darrell Revis, how are the approaches different for those two stories? That was extremely different, right? And, and then the, the Faker story um, is about the greatest League of Legends player in the world, is a 19-year-old Korean kid, was more of an almost writing challenge than a reporting challenge because the reporting was... Let me put it this way. A lot of people have read a lot of stories about Darrell Beavis. So with that, it was like, okay, how do I find something new to communicate about him uh, through my time spent with him, the questions I ask of him, what I see about him. Hey, guys. So the inter audio intermittently cut out here. But when Mina returns to talk, she's uh, talking about how she kind of approached the story uh, that she wrote on Faker and eSports. 
real and so people are so unfamiliar with it. I didn't feel like I had to go into my interview with him, say, and get him to say something he had never said before or observe. You know what I mean? Because um, he was a new quantity to most of our readers and uh, most readers in general. He hadn't given a lot of interviews. So with that, it was more about just taking everything in, being super observant, um, thinking on the fly about what the interesting themes were um, and issues during the interviews while also just being, and and just kind of, starting to think about how I would be able to synthesize that in a, in a, into a story for our readers. How did you, how did you, how did you enjoy that trip, uh, the trip to Korea? Oh, it was wonderful. I hadn't, so I hadn't been to, I have a lot of family there and I hadn't been to Korea in eight years, I think. Um, so it was pretty shocking. I mean, have you ever been? Yeah. So the last time I went, uh, was last winter and it was my first time there in four years. Basically every time I go there, it's like, it's a new place. Yeah, I mean, even the, I was telling someone about the subway, you know, it's so easy to use now. Oh, it's Uh, the best. It's fantastic. You know, it wasn't like that the last time I had been. Um, I felt like it would be a lot easier to live there now as a foreigner than it was when I was young. Yeah, and everybody speaks English now. Yeah. It's kind of convenient, too. Um, You speak Korean. Yeah, I speak Korean. Um, I can can speak it conversationally. I have, like, the vocabulary of of a kindergartner. Um, and my grammar is probably terrible, but I can get by for the most part. Uh, I have the vocabulary of like a two-year-old, so I think <laughs> you've got me beat. But yeah, it definitely wasn't good enough to do interviews. Um, it was good enough for me to amuse the various people I was interviewing with my terrible introductions. Um, which actually, that's another interview thing is, um... With this isn't true of investigative reporting at all, but with these profiles and features, um, you know, making people feel comfortable and like that you're not, you don't think you're, you know, above them in any way or have any kind of advantage. I find is is helpful. So I think um, my shitty Korean may have helped in that regard. But anyways, yeah, I I loved it. I, I actually stayed for a few days too to see family. So not to suggest that the trip was a boondoggle anyway because it was completely necessary and you know going back to what you were asking me at the beginning about sort of um being an asian american journalist and how that approaches or affects my approach so that was a really important sort of facet of this story and the reporting of it i think um which is that i and my editor megan greenwell felt that a lot of the stories about esports at the time well really all of the major stories in u.s or english publications were about North American or European players and teams um, who were just, frankly, not the best. You know, there'd always be a sentence in the story that was like, and the Koreans came and kicked everyone's ass. So we were like, let's write about the Koreans who are kicking people's asses, uh, which seems so intuitive, but uh apparently isn't so and that really bore fruit for us obviously i also have the advantage of working for espn which has the budget to send me to korea and work with a translator but still i think that really um permitted for the best possible story what did you kind of learn about yourself on that trip to korea uh you mean like about myself yeah as a, as a writer i guess uh it was a very it was good to be out of my element you know i don't do a lot of international reporting and it's it's so important i think to be in a situation where you're not comfortable and you can't just retreat to a press room or you can't just talk to your friends 
but the whole time you're like slightly uncomfortable um, is so important to reporting because you're forced to rely on other people and ask questions constantly and constantly be observant, which are the most important uh, qualities you can bring, right, to any reporting job. So I kind of learned to be a little bit more um, comfortable with discomfort. Um, I learned a lot about interviewing people who don't speak English with the help of a translator and how to do that, <laughs> which was a unique experience. Um, obviously, it would have been better if I spoke Korean. But in a way, I think um, it, it certainly worked out, and uh, which I owe a lot to my translator. So it was a great experience and a, and a, and a, and a story that I, I just felt so um, happy and honored to be able to share with a Western audience. What do you think is one of the worst stories that you ever worked on? And uh, what did you kind of take away from that experience? Like process or the result? Uh, both, I guess. Uh, okay. Gosh. This is a tough one. Um, Trying to think through all my stories. I don't think, I mean, it's certainly not something at ESPN, so it would have to be something earlier in my career. Um, You know, I think early on, some of my, when I was writing about investing, some of the stories I did were, I certainly, not only did I not know what the hell I was doing, I think I pretended like I did, and that resulted in um, some pretty bad stuff. <laughs> so that was kind of a lesson I had to learn early on, which is hard because a lot of writers, especially today, don't have the luxury to not pretend like they know, right? Especially when you're writing for the internet and you have a certain volume quota, you kind of have to constantly feign authority or at least achieve a, a, a veneer of it. And I was blessed that I, I didn't really have to do that very often, except for at the beginning of my career. So at the magazine, how do you come up with the story ideas? Is it something that you do by yourself or is that something that an editor gives you? How does that kind of process work out for you? Um, so it's all over the place. So I write a column, uh, which I should have mentioned, and that column is sort of sporadic. You know, the magazine comes out every two weeks. I write it. I try to write it, you know, every issue or every other issue or whatever, but um, we don't always run all of the columns. And it's an interesting space because the column is a lot of people describe it as sports business column. It's really not, which probably means I'm not doing a good job, but it's sort of about issues and off the field issues in sports. And it's always reported. Um, and I sort of ask a question or, or whatever. It's not really a hot take. Um, so for that, I'm, I'm constantly, for example, my latest column was about, uh, we just had the, we just had ESPN just aired a game in China between the uh, University of Washington and Texas. Uh, and Pac-12 has been, the Pac-12 has been making a real push to have games in China and stream games in China. So that column kind of just started from a question, which was I, I noticed some stories about the game a few, about a month ago. And I was like, okay, well, why are they doing this? Which seems like a really obvious question. Like, oh, of course, they want exposure. Every business wants to go into China you know, they want Chinese fans or whatever, and maybe a media deal. But I was like, you know what, like, it's not like a huge audience. I mean, it could be, but it's not, you know, it can't be the only motive. And just through reading and talking to people, what I kind of figured out was, and, and finding out that they were having this huge college expo for students, 
after the game, one thing in my reporting that for Chinese students that really caught my attention was that um, four of the top 10 schools for Chinese exchange or Chinese students in the U.S. were Pac-12 schools. And a lot of those students are notable in that they pay full tuition. Um, so are, they're very attractive for American universities, many of whom are kind of crunched by budget cuts these days. So it occurred to me that that actually, you know, this game and a lot of what the Pac-12 is doing in China is really marketing uh, geared towards prospective Chinese students. So I ended up writing a column about that. Uh, so a lot of it is just kind of reading articles and asking a question and trying to figure it out. Uh, so that's my column with features. It's a combination of assignments and those assignments can be narrow or broad. You know, with the East, the Faker story, the assignment was to write about esports. That was it. Um, my editor was like, uh, you know, you should look at Korea, but we didn't know about Faker. We didn't know about League of Legends. So that was sort of taking an assignment, taking a few days to look into it and talk to smart people and figure out what the best story was. Revis was write a story about Joe Revis, so it can be a little bit more clear cut. Who are the writers that you read on a consistent or maybe daily basis that you try to emulate after their work or admire their work or look up to their work in some form or another? Um, well, the writers I emulate tend to be writers who don't write on a daily basis, you know, just magazine because they're magazine writers. So I'll name some of those. Um, well, first in the magazine, just to be a total Homer, I think we have so many fantastic and wonderful writers, you know, um, obviously Wright Thompson, um, Seth Rickersham is great. Uh, Kevin Van Valkenburg. I mean, they're all just fantastic Tim Kuhn writers. Um, but separately from that, I really love uh, Jennifer Gonnerman, Jean Marie Laskus at GQ, um, my friend Zach Barron, who writes at GQ, writes the most wonderful profiles, I think. Um, so off the top of my head, those are some writers that I always read. Um, you know, I always read Charlie Pierce's columns. I guess he writes more often, so that's uh, maybe not daily. Well, maybe he does. Anyways, um, my reading diet, I read oh Ramona Shelburne at the website is just so fantastic and such a reporting inspiration so I read ESPN and Sports Illustrated and SB Nation and Deadspin but I still try to read you know national and business news um, which I think is helpful to my column because it kind of keeps me thinking about the way sports interacts with the rest of the world and I think it's important not to get to lose sight of that how do you view your role as a female in sports media and how does that kind of affected how you approach things in your writing? Um, I will answer your first question. I feel really proud. Um, I don't know. I mean, not to, it, it's hard to answer that without sort of patting myself on the back, but when they, when ESPN hired me, I think one of the first emails I got was uh, from a female college student who was like, oh, I opened the magazine was so excited to see your face. So that's really humbling and cool um, and speaks to the continued problem in sports media, which is that there just aren't nearly enough female writers. Um, so I, I view that as like a responsibility um, in the same way I do as an Asian American journalist, which is to help younger writers and talk to them and also um, just be out there, you know, talking to people and, and, and trying to bring more people into the fold. 
to answer your second question, which was kind of how does that affect the way I approach stories, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it, it certainly affects it in the same way that being a business journalist affects how I look at every story about sports, which is my sort of kind of follow the money feeling that I can never shake how I read everything. Um, I'm always reading stories and thinking about not only how they affect women, but who are the women in this story. You know, I you, earlier we were talking about players. I always want to talk to players' mothers and and why. And then I guess that not everyone does that, but that's something that I I, I just always think about when I'm doing a profile. So um, I think about writing about women, I, I, which is something I hope to do more off more in the coming year. Um, you know, have more stories about female athletes or just women involved in sports. Uh, it's something that I've written about in my column a few times and I hope to do more often. So it's very important to me. Something interesting that I thought you said was how you kind of viewed your role as a female in sports media and how you also viewed your role as an Asian American person in sports media. Um, for coming from your perspective, do you see any interplay between those two dynamics in your work? Um, well, when you put them together, the Venn diagram gets even smaller, right? Um, I mean, they're both certainly underrepresented groups in sports media and media in general. And it's, you know, appalling when you look at the numbers. Uh, so I think about both of those aspects of myself and the industry all of the time. Um, and, you know, I, people say we're making progress, but it certainly isn't fast enough, in my opinion. And again, that's not just sports. Coming from business, it was just as bad. Mm -hmm. What do you think that, that perspective uh, or just kind of having the diverse dynamic? I know ESPN is, is, is a more diverse company than the most out there. Um, but what do you think that diversity brings um, to to writing or, or to yeah. stories? What, what, does the, what do those perspective, perspectives bring? I think it brings a greater openness to good story. I mean, again, to go back to the figures, I don't know. I'm not going to say, you know, a white journalist wouldn't have wanted chosen that story. Um, but I do know that my background played a role in, in my approach to the story and my interest in it. And I don't, I, you know, and I feel that way about a lot of stories. And I think if we don't have underrepresented groups in, at, at, you know, in, in news publications, you miss out on a lot of important stories and you suffer in your coverage of breaking stories. You know, one of the biggest sports stories the last few years has been the domestic violence issue in the NFL and, and starting with the Ray Rice story, which is kind of what kicked it all off. It was so important that ESPN had a strong stable of female writers to come out and write about it, um, which they did. And I was extremely proud to work here when that happened. You know, um, I think the day that video came out, we had maybe three or four bylines by female journalists on the homepage. Uh, and that's so important. Uh, you know, it's not to say that only women can write about them, but the, but you do need women writing about this the story like that. I think we're in a really interesting time in terms of race in America, um, in in that there's I think there's been an interesting, 
I mean, there's there's been all of the the stuff in Mizzou and and Yale, and then there's also you know Michael Brown and Ferguson and all that stuff going on. Um, and then I think there's also from from my perspective seeing um, the growth in uh, Asian re- Asian American representation in media, whether it's you know through Fresh Off the Boat or you know Aziz Ansari's new show where he, who tackles a lot of these issues about being a minority, uh, first generation minority in America. Um, how, how have you kind of seen that play out, um, either in your writing or just kind of in your life? Uh, yeah, I, I, it makes me really happy because I don't feel like that was happening when I was in college. And some of that is, you know, it must be really, I mean, you can speak to this better than I can. It must be a really exciting time to be a college student and especially a person of color on campus. Um, I, you know, when the Yale stuff happened, I tweeted this, there was an incident when I was in college where a satirical publication at Yale did these racist headlines uh, about Asian Americans. Um, And there was a small backlash, but it died out pretty quickly. And you know what? I don't feel like that would happen on campus today. Um, So I, which I think is just great. I don't know. It makes me, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of envious of students today. I think there's just, it's so much, there's just so much more, progressive conversation going on i don't know do you feel like that's the case i think so to a certain extent um i think i i I think my college campus is in a very interesting place there were some issues with the student newspaper and uh and uh and ways that uh an african-american potential suspect was portrayed on, on social media um and that i thought was a very interesting time to reflect on um kind of the portrayal of minorities on campus. And I also think there's um, been a a small wave since Fresh Off the Boat, I think, um, was, has been on TV uh, in in thinking about, you know, what is the role of Asian Americans in media? Um, And, and for me, like in in going through the kind of the internship app process, a lot of the questions are kind of self-reflective and asking you like why you want to be a writer and going back to, my my kind of upbringing uh, i realized that there wasn't really any um asian american people in sports media and it's uh and especially you know being being uh an asian american student who's fortunate enough to to go to a school that i that i go to uh, like cornell um i'll hear from other asian american families like uh at like at church and they'll ask me why i'm not going into to medicine or engineering or going into law or something like that um, and I, I, for me, at least it's, it's really encouraging to see people like you and, and Jay Caspian and, uh, and Pablo kind of being at this prominent level in sports media and, and kind of pointing to the bait and being like, Hey, you know, somebody who, who looks like me or, or thinks like me in some way, shape or form can, can do this. Thank you. Well, it's very inspiring to see college students like you or freaking Tim Ty, right? Out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw I saw Tim Ty going nuts on, on the Mizzou professor and I was just like, you, you know, you go, bro. Like oh, yeah, and his comments afterwards on Twitter were really smart and good and, and, and I, I just seeing his face made me happy and um yeah, I don't know. I, I it is very exciting, I think, and very different from when I was in college, which wasn't that long ago. I'm not that old, but um <laughs> It's amazing how much things have changed in such a short period of time. Do you think about that at all? Um, at your your kind of my impending aging. Or... <laughs> no, I I mean like your your role as as you know one of the few Asian American voices on 
on in sports media. I do. And again, going back to the fact that I am not always identified as such, um, you know, being mixed and, you know, I can pass a lot of different ways. It's very important for me to self-identify as Asian so that other people um, recognize that and I can be a voice, um, which is, yeah, being half or Hapa is just a whole different set of issues, right? Um, And, you know, it's funny, I have a Korean flag tattoo on my shoulder and people always ask me, oh, is he... Why'd you get that? And for me, it was a real, it was when I started learning Korean, it it was kind of a signaling mechanism that, you know, this is part of me and who I am. And I want the outside world to see that. And um, I try to do that, I guess, in all spheres, not just on my shoulder. (laughs) When did you start learning Korean? Oh, man. Well, I started as a child, did a little Saturday school and, you know, like every bad kid. I can relate, yeah. (laughs) And then um, after college... I started taking classes in New York. Um, can't remember exactly when or what. It, well, I know what motivated it. it was really just about wanting to be able to speak, communi- communicate with my mother. Um, so it's come and gone. I really hope to get back into it soon, but I am really god awful at it. I mean, I, I, my mom was always like, I can't, I can't read or write. So I'm kind of really uh, reading and writing is the easiest part, right? I know. So I, I used to know how to read and write, and then I forgot it at one point, and then I had to relearn Korean through watching Korean dramas with my mom. Oh, uh, yeah, you watch. <laughs> um, so we, I think uh, this was like I was in third grade or something, and we were watching Samsuni, which is like one of the biggest Korean dramas ever. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so I picked it. I picked up speaking there, but I never. I can never find the time or, or really have muster up the effort to, to learn how to read and write again. You could pick that up so easily. It's so much harder than speaking. Yeah. I mean, like I, I mean, Sorry. yeah, no, I mean, I, I really like my mom tells me that it's super easy and, and I, uh, the minor, the, I mean, the few times I've tried, it's always been like, Oh, I mean, there's so much to learn, like so many letters. And then I think about like my mom coming to the States um, not knowing any English and then kind of building a life for herself with my, with like my dad. And it's just, I, I can't even think about how difficult that must've been. Yeah. Right. It's like that episode and you said you saw master of none, right? Yeah. I've, I've seen it's it like, two times through now. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, yeah. The second episode, it's, right? That's more of a product of me watching too much TV than anything. um yeah i know it is crazy i mean my mom speaks perfect english so it it, it is mockers but it's really it's really interesting for me because like i'll I'll talk to my mom and uh and i'll say something sarcastic in english uh just because that's just naturally like how i kind of uh talk i guess which is maybe not a good thing um and she'll she'll just it'll come go completely overhead and she'll she'll get mad at me and then she'll kind of say a sarcastic thing in Korean and it'll go completely over my head. And uh, it, just seeing that dynamic and like her getting mad at me being sarcastic in English yeah. and knowing that I kind of got that sense of humor from her and she just doesn't understand English is really funny. Yeah, learning Korean was really interesting because once I started learning about sort of sentence structure, I think I realized that a lot of what I perceived about my mom talking to me growing up was actually a function of translation, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. So it's been interesting because Korean's like a much more functional language. It makes like English doesn't make any sense. You know, Korean is like math in a way. Yeah, it is a lot more logical. Um, yeah, I mean, 
it's it, I just think it's a uh, it's super interesting and um I, I I started I think I started to become more hyper aware of like sports media and and the lack of representation with uh with Asian Americans when when the whole insanity thing happened and um there was the the variety of issues that people had and just the lack of experience people had in in ha- trying to con- put that put that whole thing in context and how to Right. And at the time, that's why it was so great to have writers like Pablo and Jay there to write about it. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, for, I mean, what, were, what, were, what was kind of your experience um, growing up watching sports and, and how you kind of thought about yourself in, in, in that context? Well, I think it was kind of, as you say, one of those things where because I saw so few Asian Americans not only not playing it, but also not talking about it, um, it almost didn't even occur to me as a possibility. Uh, which again cuts to why it's so important to have us um, out there, whether it's on camera, or on Twitter, writing, or whatever. Um, it just seemed like another field or sphere that was sort of inaccessible, as both an Asian American and certainly as a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you maintain a pretty funny Twitter persona, I guess. Thank you. Um, and you post a lot of pictures of your dog. Yeah, he's very nice to me. Yeah, I my my Twitter is kind of doofy. Um, you know, I it's sort of a conscious decision not to take it too seriously, I guess, or maybe it's unconscious. I, I, I try to not take the internet seriously in general. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard uh, to be affected by it and to mix in, you know, occasional bouts of. It, but I will say it. it is so significant to, I mean, to, we've been talking a lot about career, I guess. It's been a huge part of my career, both in my transition to becoming a sports writer and meeting other people in sports. So I, you know, can live with it, can live without it. How, how have you kind of utilized your, your Twitter to, to do that? Well, um, like, so I mostly use it to make jokes or just tweet stories. Um, but in doing so, I kind of connect with other people who I hope will, and I read their stories, and I hope, and I use it to read, you know, kind of keep my eye on what's going on. And then, I, you know, I hope that it helps other people read my stories when I write them. So there is, it's basically a giant social Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, no, think, I, I don't yeah. think I've ever thought of it that way, but it makes total sense. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I don't know that many sports people just walking around. I can't walk up to them, give them a printout of my story and be like, Hey, would you, you might enjoy this. So it is like, a very, like effective... your mixtape on the streets of New York city. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shoving it to their hands, signing it and then being like, okay, that's five bucks. No, uh, there's, there's a guy in my, in, in, in Ithaca right now who literally, whenever I walk down to the offices of the student school newspaper, he shoves a mixtape in my face every single time. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I came to New York and didn't realize that was a scam. I was like, oh, this is so cool. This, like, underground artist just gave me his music. Wow, New York's so welcoming. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, it is it's Twitter. I mean, it's so important for not only con- communication, whatever, but just distribution. I feel like if somebody uh, – if I feel like if somebody just, like, knew me from just Twitter, they would think I'm just yelling – like <laughs> yelling or just like making jokes 99% of the time. Cause if ever, whenever I'm watching a Patriots game, it's just me being like a nutball. Yeah. I don't know. I only know you from Twitter and you seem pretty balanced. Um, but yeah, I think people probably would think I'm a lot weirder 
than I am based on social media alone, which is fine. I feel like, I feel like but social media also brings out extremes. Like there was the story about the girl from the like the Instagram model who um, like deleted our account and was was basically talked about like everything, how everything was fake on social media. Um, yeah. And I feel like social media does that in that like on Facebook, you only see like the, the best of the moments and um, sure. it's, it's, or the most performative outrage or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have to be really conscious to avoid becoming a caricature of yourself. I think something I struggle with. Yeah, uh, it it means it's it's. I mean, for me, like I'm I'm like only in college, but like I feel very fortunate to have um, the number of followers, I guess, that I have. And yeah, have you have a ton. Before. I didn't think you were in college when I followed you back. I was like, oh, it's a Korean sports writer. No, it's, yeah, it was like the Catch a Predator, Twitter. <laughs> I just made this joke about, um, shit, what was it about? It was about the, the movie Spotlight just came out, and there was this picture of Rachel McAdams, and I just made a joke, like, oh, why are journalists in movies always, like, you know, either, like, sleeping around a lot, or they dress like this, or whatever. Or schlubs, just yeah. There was, there was an article in the Boston Globe about, I think it was the Boston Globe, about how... It was accurate. How the cost? Yeah, how how yeah. accurate the costumes were. I did a story about it too. And it, literally, it was just a joke. But like, so many people have like flooded my mentions with like, actually, like this is. I'm like, ah, it was a joke. So you do have to, yeah, right. Like, anyways, I. No, but it's, 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 been it's, 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 it's pretty fascinating. Because um, like, I don't when I when I had like the the opportunity to like to intern and and see some of the journalists around the like the Red Sox clubhouse the the clothing choices or the sartorial choices of of <laughs> the people in spotlight are pretty spot on yeah it's pretty accurate based on my experience certainly at espn especially that's that's been the biggest change i have all these business clothes i don't wear anymore if you in sports like like a suit you know or like dresses like come on so that's been a big change are you interested are you- at all in in expanding beyond just just print uh, yeah, you know, I do some television with ESPN um, and radio here and there, and I definitely want to do all of that stuff going forward. Um, but, you know, I'm a writer. always be a writer. It's, right. it's right. what I love. Sure. Uh, Mina Kimes, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again to Mina Kynes for coming out of the show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with her. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter. She's at Mina Kimes. She uh, is a big Seattle sports fan, I think, as I think we mentioned in, in the interview. She talks about a variety of things. Uh, really entertaining Twitter follow. One of my personal favorites. Um, and she's just a generally pleasant, awesome person to talk to. So uh, please do follow me on Twitter and, and make sure to check out all the things that she's written for, for the magazine. Uh, she's really one of my favorite writers uh in the game right now uh, so that was my interview with Mina Kimes uh, we've got some interesting things coming up with the podcast itself over the next few weeks uh, and some some new stuff in the calendar year as well uh, some small things are developing that I think will, will hopefully benefit the podcast moving forward that I'm excited to tell you guys about uh, we don't have a sponsor of the show uh, so if you do want to sponsor the show you can email us at doing it for Bartolo at gmail.com uh, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, that's at I am June Lee, uh, J O O N L E E. And uh, if you have guys have any guests that you want to hear on the show, uh, please feel free to let me know. We've got some exciting guests lined up uh, tentatively. So if you do have anybody that you particularly want to hear us talk to, 
please please tweet it at me or tweet it at Robbie, and, and we'll try to get them on the show as well. So until next week, uh, make sure to rate us on iTunes. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or any of the podcasting platforms that you listen to the show or however you want to consume the show. Uh, please make sure to subscribe to keep up with all the episodes when they are released. We're hoping to release an episode every single Wednesday. Uh, so hopefully we'll have one next Wednesday as well for you guys, uh, whether it's an interview or me just kind of BSing with either Robbie or one of my friends or something along the sorts. So for those of you guys who do celebrate Christmas, have a Merry Christmas, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening.